Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. This might sound like I'm putting you on or making this up or coming up with some kind of weird joke, but I'm not. I swear to God. There's a district in Manhattan that is considered poor that has a Ferrari dealership. And it, it is not like, oh, Manhattan. Uh, no, no. Th- this, is, this, is, this is really going on. Bizarre, right? Stephen Grosser, bizarre thing. Well, not only that, it is the St. Regis where you can get, you know, the St. Regis afternoon tea. Right, it's wonderful. Thousand dollar a night hotels. Not that I've ever used one of them, but you know, thousand dollar Ferrari dealership. I mean, look, clearly we are not talking about what is actually a poor district, and the question is, how can you possibly call it that, and why do people call it that? And what is the significance of it? Because it's not just like well, a what is the funny Manhattan I thing. think it's key that what is the significance to banks. Well, exactly, gross. We're getting to the heart of it. Because one of the most interesting stories you will read today on WSJ.com is about this. And we have the two reporters who wrote the story in the studio with us today, Rachel Louise Ensign and Anna Maria Andriotis. Welcome, ladies. How are you? Good. Doing Thanks well. Uh, th- this is a really interesting story. <laughs> Uh, can you? Well, let's see. I want to know how this came about, like how you got into this and what. Yeah. You know. But first off, just give us the give us like the lead. What, what's going on here? Well, it actually maybe I'll start with how we oh, came okay. to write the story. Sure. It's actually a really interesting story. So last year, um, Anna Marie and I were writing a story about this bank called First Republic, and um, they really the the story that we wound up writing was about how this bank really lends only to the wealthy, and yet is subject to these community lending laws that actually say, you know, you do actually have to lend to, if you're operating in New York, if you're operating in San Francisco, you have to lend to You can't across, redline neighborhoods and not, and not do business income groups. In them. Yeah. yeah. If there are lower income people in the right. cities, you have to lend to them. And it seemed like by some statistics, maybe this bank wasn't necessarily doing that very much. So when we were in talks with the bank, at some point they sent us this list. They said, We have so many branches in low-income areas. We have many of them, um, and we're and I said, okay, please send please send us a list of them, and they did. And there was one in New York, and it was on Park Avenue across the street from the Waldorf Astoria. Wow! And so we were we just thought that that was so interesting, and we started looking into this. And it's true, you know, it is technically because of this quirk in federal law. It is technically a lower income area. And all these banks that have branches on Fifth Avenue, on Madison Avenue, that the people going to them are hedge fund guys who work in the offices nearby. They're getting credit for them on these tests that measure how well banks lend or provide services to the poor. So that's how we got into it. And the reason for this quirk, we learn after uh, a laborious trip down the rabbit Very hole <laughs> of, of how these banking regulations work is basically the banking regulators in in recent years have been relying on old and unreliable census data to measure the incomes in these From tracks. what, like 1850? I mean, when was, <laughs> seriously, when was the last time these neighborhoods were not rich neighborhoods? Yeah, well, it's and a good how question. And how are they – yeah. But that, but that has to do with the fact that they have so few people. Few residents. That they're – I'm assuming – the census data is pretty volatile on their average income. 
Well, yeah, that's well, the, yeah, the, the quirks. The quirks in the data definitely have to do with um, these areas that have a small number of residents. Like in the New York example that Rachel and I wrote about, there the number was like two hundred thirty. Basically, it was very low. Residents. Um, yeah. yeah. Total okay. Residents. And now, complicating matters. Um, there are people who have these like luxury condominiums, but don't actually live there year round. Mm. It's not their primary residence. So like these are like people who are millionaires, billionaires, but that's not necessarily counted into the numbers. So one really interesting property that we looked at is this, um, the Olympic Tower, which is in this area. The Gucci sisters are selling the penthouse in this property for $35 million. And yet this building is contributing. It's, it, it's wow. part of the track yeah. that's considered to be poor by federal regulators. But can we talk, like now that we're talking about that neighborhood, can we, I don't want to give up the kicker, but we have to talk a little bit about the kicker here. Who else lives there? Anna Maria learned, did a lot of this part of reporting, so I'll, I'll let her explain. Um, so St. Patrick's Cathedral is in this area, and there are nine priests who do live there, including the cardinal. Mm. They make around $30,000 a year each. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, that could potentially be <laughs> impacting the numbers, right? right? right. Um, so there you have it. You have priests that are making a very low salary. Um, and uh, that is likely helping to deem this neighborhood and, as low income. And the latest census data, though, in that neighborhood, there's only 30, was it? Households that submitted data, uh, yes. income data, if I'm correct. We yes. don't know like exactly who Those in the area were, submitted, right? right? Yeah, but it's based on 30 wow. um, submitted. Now, now yeah. you, in the story, of course, you lead with that one. And I mean, it was really easy, not... Not that the work was easy for you, but in, in terms of geography, it's easy because it's you know, literally a few blocks away yeah. from us. But this is not just a, a New York phenomenon. No. So one, one thing that we found is even though the bank regulators have been relying on this older data, the census has actually been releasing new data every year. Um, and in many cases, they've had data out there for a while now that pretty clearly show that these tracts that banks are getting credit for branches in are no longer low income or the data is so bad that they don't think there's any reliable measure of income at all, which is the case for this New York tract. Um, But because of the bank regulator rules, they have not yet been using that info. But now this year, they will start using that. And what we found is that in there, we found the 10 most popular tracts, poor tracts, their areas like uh, this New York tract, there's a downtown San Francisco financial district t- tract with 53 bank branches in wow. it. That's a lot. Uh, by Consider far the most. Poor. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And right. and then there's a Washington, D.C. Brand, uh, tract next to the White House that now this year will formally be recognized as very rich. So a lot of these tracts are going to be stripped of their designations as poor because – the bank regulators are finally going to recognize what the census has been saying for a while now, which is, uh, no, these wow. these tracts are not poor. And, and six of the ten are, are going to be stripped. I want to just take a sort of step back and talk about the regulation, the Community Reinvestment Act. That, was, that came under Carter, and then it was updated under Clinton. And why, essentially, the number of branches you have in low-income neighborhoods matters to those 
um, you know, the, that regulation? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So basically, this act was put in place to stop redlining. And so the purpose of it was to say, hey, banks, you need to have branches and loans in lower income areas where you operate. And we're going to measure that. And then in the Clinton administration, they introduced this uniform way of measuring it. So it's really fascinating because every bank has a public analysis of this that's released. And so as a part of that analysis, what they look at is how many branches, what share of your branches are in these LMI neighborhoods. And they, they really drill down. They really scrutinize it. So that is really something banks think about and and put into place. And, who, and you get a grade, right? Yeah, you get a grade in the end. So you don't get a specific grade on just LMI branches, but it hel- it it is a part of your broader grade, which is like satisfactory, outstanding, needs to improve. And I want to take a break here, but before, yeah. before we go to break, who, who does that analysis? Is that the banks themselves or is that government regulators? So, well, each – so the regulators – so the, there's basically um, uh, the OCC, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and they have like their own banks that they are do- sure. conducting this CRA examination on. Um, it doesn't necessarily – they don't come out annually for every bank. I mean, there's there's usually like a few years of a gap, but um, this is basically like one of the key pieces of that test. Wow. Yeah, right. yeah. And um, just one final point, which is that one thing Anna Maria mentioned, totally true, there is a really long lag a lot of times in these tests. So even though the data are changing this year and the designations are changing this year, this old – data where you could get credit for branches on Park Avenue is going to be affecting banks' grades for years because of that lag. Wow. All right. Let's take a break. A lot more to talk about with Rachel and Anna Maria right after this. Rapid expansion. We're ready. Worker shortage. We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax. We've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. It's like having a crystal ball inside your earbuds. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. We are talking about banks doing business in, and I'm I'm using air quotes here. You can't see it, but trust me, I'm doing it. Uh, Quote, unquote, poor neighborhoods. Story, great story on WSJ.com, written by Rachel Louise Ensign and Anna Maria Andriotis, who join us today in the studio. Uh, Grosser, did you, you said you had a question? Yeah, you want to I, mean, lead off here? I wanted to get a sense from you guys how much this happens because banks are targeting those neighborhoods to get a better score, or how much of this is just a product of these are commercial districts where a lot of people are going to be going out on lunch, doing some banking. Um, and you know, you're, or have really tourist areas where people are going to be and, using. Uh, these oh, they just happen to help us out on our CA, CRA scores, right? Like yeah. this is not a coincidence. I right. mean, the banks spend a lot of time planning where they're going to open up branches. Branches are very costly to yeah. open to maintain, so they need to get a lot of benefits out of that, which isn't just going to be like, um, you know, the customers, the deposits coming in. That's a big part of it, but it's like, well, like. Uh, help from a regulatory perspective is another big benefit. Yeah, yeah. What what I would say is folks that I've spoke to who are consultants who help banks plan where to put their branches, what they've said is, uh, you know, a bank isn't probably isn't 
in le- except in extreme situations, going to open a branch somewhere just because it's one of these poor areas. But it's definitely a factor that they look at. So um, my sense is banks have a very, especially smaller banks that don't have that many branches, they have a very clear understanding of how many of these LMI branches that they have. And they are very conscious to not let it drop below a certain level for fear that they'll look bad on the test. Yeah. Yep. And so um, – I think some of these areas banks would obviously have branches in anyway, but it, it's definitely a significant well, I, I factor. The other question I have then is: is how many how many branches do they have? Like, what's the percentage of branches that they have in these you know quote unquote poor neighborhoods as opposed to branches they have in, in actual, actual poor world. neighborhoods? You know, that was not an analysis that we were able to run. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it it could probably be done just given the yeah. new data that's recategorizing all of the all the information, but um, unfortunately, we did not do that. Wow. Well, you would think maybe after this one, the banks will want to do that on their own yeah, to show yeah. that they're good corporate <laughs> citizens. Well, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> the question I have is, what are the costs to banks if they do poorly on this test? And why yeah. is it important for them to try to get a good score? Uh, so one, I mean, there is a serious reputational factor. I mean, banks do take this seriously. And if they have a bad rating, they care. It's important to note, though, that very few banks actually get bad ratings. So there is this one rating called needs to improve that's considered the bad rating. And um, I think only like 3% of banks have that. So it's a test that does not seem that hard to get a good score on. When we look at like the time period of something like between around 2006 or so to 2015, based on federal data, um, at least um, it was about 97% of the banks examined for CRA passed. And so Hmm. that's a separate question because that raises the question of, well, like how effective, like, like, if everybody's getting an A plus or whatever, right? Like if everybody's passing, how good is the actual test yeah. in terms yeah, of measuring? Absolutely. You know, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, right. But there, but there have there have been some big name banks that have gotten needs to improve recently. So Wells Fargo just got it. Um, Regions had it, even though they've said that they're going to now be upgraded. Fifth Third um, ha- has it, and basically it prevents you from doing mergers. And it also puts some limits oftentimes on your branch expansion. So it's really a regulatory overhang that especially if you're not one of the biggest banks, it's not going to do deals you don't want to have. So basically, if you don't meet these regulations, if you don't meet these criteria, the the government regulators will not let you do certain things like M&A that you want to do. Exactly. And there's this one bank in Mississippi that actually has had two deals on hold for years now because at some point after they announced the deals, they – um, got their CRA rating downgraded, and now it's unclear if they'll ever be able to do them. So, so you were saying, Rachel, before that, about what was it, six of these 10 districts you were talking about are going to, because of the updates to the census data, they're going to change. So how is that going to affect what these banks, how, how these banks meet these regulations? It's a great question. Um, I mean, it's, for for a very big bank like um, a J.P. Morgan or a Wells Fargo, they have so many branches in LMI tracts that losing a few of them because of the changes isn't going to matter that much, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, even though Wells Fargo obviously does have to figure out how to boost its its CRA rating, given that they now have needs to improve. But um, for a bank like we First Republic, where which was kind of the starting point for this story, three of their branches are in um, 
these tracks that are going to get recategorized, three of their 14 LMI branches. So that could be the difference between, I mean, I'm not sure, but it could be the difference between regulators saying, oh, yeah, you know, you seem in line with your peers on all these poorer area branches and saying, no, you're actually below the peers and we don't like that. But First Republic, also important to note, is getting CRA credit for a branch on Facebook's campus that only Facebook's employees can use because the broader area is moderate income. So none of those people can go to the branch, but the bank gets credit for it. So that's one of their 14. I mean, while we're on the topic of this bank and like just, you know, the banks that could be impacted by these changes to come and those that aren't. I mean, this was one big point of like sort of defending itself, you know, that the bank shared with us when we were working on the story last summer, right? So last year, as Rachel said, when we were working on that story about First Republic, this bank that, you know, it's a retail bank, it, you know, has all, you know, a lot of the same regulations that all the other banks have to follow. But um, how is it able to be doing the the majority of its lending to affluent individuals, the bank said, well, you know, here are examples that that were not just about, you know, the affluent. And look, mm-hmm. we had these branches in low, lower income areas. So all and of a sudden, wow. these areas are up yeah. for question. Yeah. And one of them is Facebook's campus. <laughs> yeah. Facebook's and campus, only yeah. Facebook employees could use it. And one of the great stats, it's like $189,000 is what the average Facebook employee makes. Yeah, Globally, right. Yeah, that's yeah. just in stock comp. Um, so they're just, of, trying to find, they're just trying to find customers who want to take an honest loan to go buy their Ferrari. <laughs> so what's the big deal, no, right? I mean, this is- Ferrari refers to this dealership. Well, it's not a dealership. It's a, quote, corporate showroom. Um, so what does that mean? Yeah. Well, there are some actual Ferraris in there. You can custom order a Ferrari in you there can. if you'd like. But it's not technically a dealership. It's a, quote, corporate showroom. And if you'd like, you can buy some Ferrari clothing in there as well. Just FYI. In case a Ferrari onesie for a baby. <laughs> One question I have, though, comes to sort of the bigger picture with banks and their business. We've written a lot and talked a lot about how the branch, you know, people don't use branches anymore. How does that play into this whole story? Yeah, I mean, I think one important change since the crisis, which was something that Anna Marie and I wrote two stories about last year, that First Republic story and also a story about the boom and jumbo mortgage lending, is that since the crisis, banks have by and large been shifting towards the affluent as the ideal customer. Every single bank, mm-hmm. even if their um, their core customer is not necessarily affluent. They're trying to get the affluent customers or get more out of the few affluent customers they have. So while we didn't do a very extensive analysis of how many of these LMI branches are in um, these kind of questionable poor neighborhoods, the fact that the banks are really trying to cater to these affluent office workers is very much in line with industry trends. And, you know, they see these people as people who are going to take out safe mortgages that won't go bad in the wake of the crisis. Um, They're going to bring their wealth management uh, accounts there. So these people who work in these areas that are like kind of faux poor areas are really the ideal bank customer right now. Hmm. All right. Uh, Fascinating story from both of you. Very well done. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for coming in and sharing with us. Everyone, hey, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. It's like having a crystal ball inside your earbuds. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. 
Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.